like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Welcome to Renegade Rules. Kick back, settle in, and let us fill your ear holes with early learning information, wisdom, and advice. And now, here's Heather and Jeff. Welcome to Renegade Rules. Jeff Johnson here with Heather Shoemaker and Alyssa. I can't pronounce your last name <laughs> because I'm I'm I just can't because I would pronounce your last name so I don't embarrass myself. Moina Lupembe. You just say all the letters, Jeff. Just say them all. Moina <laughs> Lupembe. Some of those letters don't go together in my in my <laughs> mouth. Moina. Okay, let's go to the episode. Sorry, yeah, Alyssa. I'm going to practice. So Alyssa. we're back for a second time, and I'm just thrilled to um, have you, Alyssa, Mweni Lupembe. <laughs> and um, we, we cut you off in mid-sentence almost. We were right that in the was a pause. No, that was a perfect place to end that episode. <laughs> um, but we're right in the middle talking about some of the things um, uh, that you mentioned Dr. Gilliam had said about bias with big, black, and boys. And... Um, and whether we're going to dive into race more deeply in this episode, but just stopping on the word big, that is something that really hits kids because growth happens at asymmetrically with young kids, elementary kids, you know, and any child who's bigger, the little ones we all think are cute and precocious. And so they get away with murder. I was a little one. So I know this. <laughs> I was the shortest kid in my class and everyone thought I was so smart because I was short. Um, I had big feet, but I was short. Anyway, the big kids, I always, when I learn that somebody who's my height is a first grader, you know, I, people expect so much of them. They expect them to act as maturely as their height indicates. And that is, of course, unrealistic, but it's something we, we tend to do. So, you know, I hadn't thought about that third B about big, but it's in there. Um, and when you add that to the other two Bs, which you mentioned stood for black and boy, boy, that is a recipe for, oof. Right. And that's a, the thing that we know. Um, research has just showed us that teachers and people in general um, overestimate black children's ages um, and they overestimate their maturity. Um, so, you know, any, in, oh, peep, peep. People across the board or like white people? People across the board. Okay. I, um, because, I yeah, no, because that's the other part of Dr. Gilliam's study is that black and white educators both came to the same conclusions about children. Um, it really didn't have anything to do with race. And we have to like know that all of those social um, ideas and influences, we're all getting them all the time. Um, so just because you're black doesn't mean that you're not going to have biases against other black people. You know, it can happen because we're all getting that same media um, information all the time. Um, and so that was one of the, the characteristics of that study was that when teachers were asked 
to view a video and look for challenging behaviors, which weren't actually there. These were just children playing in a group. Um, they tracked the eye movement of the teachers watching the videos and te all teachers, black or white, paid wow. the closest attention to those black boys and black girls second. Wow, so you can't hide it by saying, oh no, I was watching that other kid, they're tracking your eye movement. They're tracking your eyes. <laughs> and it's hooked onto your brain, they knew what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. And the other part of the study, which I think is, is equally interesting, was that when they were given, when teachers were given um, like a written anecdote about a child, um, when the child's name indicated that it was the same race as the teacher, so they used really stereotypical white or black names. Um, if I was a white teacher and I was reading a, a, an anecdote about a white child, I would um, I would recommend like lower disciplinary action than if I was reading uh, an anecdote that I thought was a black child and vice versa. Same with black teachers. If a black teacher was reading um, an anecdote that they thought was about a black child, they would uh, recommend lower disciplinary. So that racial match between teacher and child is really important. Um, and when we think about um, our, our workforce um, in early childhood education, it's primarily white young middle-class educators um and so a lot of times they're just you know they, they don't have yeah female, female. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and so let's talk about the the um, um the word boy we did big a little bit let's do the boy um i mean jeff just piped in and said female um <laughs> so w when i speak at conferences i just look at the room and yeah, there might be one guy, usually not, but there might be two, but it's very, very, very heavily female. And half the kids they take care of tend to be male, <laughs> half tend to be female. So in fact, some classes, it can be lopsided. You can have a class that's just heavy on the boys or heavy on the girls. Um, there are so many, when I dive into biases as female perspective, um, so many teachers have trouble just with the boy issue um, and it's mm -hmm. and it's particularly movement and what's perceived as aggression um, which right. tends to be as you mentioned earlier that it may just be a developmentally inappropriate classroom that they're supposed to be sitting still when I can't even sit still you know I'm moving here <laughs> as I'm talking and I would be jumping up and walking around but that they can't move but then this kind of um, reading into a boy's action if somebody if if a boy jumps on another kid that that's perceived as bad and violent and aggressive whereas it might be hey buddy i'm here let's play or some other sort of um you know pro-social interaction yeah when before i kind of got in and, and dug into this whole like cultural and, and racial um aspect of this topic i was doing a lot of research and a lot of work around big body play um, and so it's been really interesting to me how those two things like go really, really well together um, because we know the boys need to move their bodies. Like that's just what they need to do. Girls too. Everybody needs to move their body, honestly. But um, it seems like in classrooms, boys might need that a little bit more than girls need it. Um, and teachers are primarily female. And I, I, when I was a teacher, I struggled with this also. It wasn't until I became a parent of a boy that I was like, oh gosh, this is what that's about. Watching my husband, you know, roll around on the floor with my children when I'm like, oh my gosh, stop, you're gonna knock everything off the shelves. 
that's, like, that's a natural way that they engage together. <laughs> that's one of my favorite subcategory of blog posts to read on the internet. It's the, it's the mommy bloggers who talk about my little boy is never going to superhero play, weapons play, rough and tumble play, whatever it is. And then they have that child for three years and realize, oh, it's what happens and I'm cool with it now. <laughs> well, and you know, we are not a family that like are gun people, but you know, my son, the minute he turned two, I think everything was a gun. He wanted the guns from the store and we never stopped him from, you know, exploring that play, but it wasn't something that we promoted. So I think there's, there's something that's biological about these things. Um, and he wasn't a kid that watched a lot of like violent shows or anything either, that he wasn't watching things where there were guns. Like we didn't even know how he got this idea, but he needed that. Um, and so I think when you put that like mixture of girls and I I wish I could remember where I read this um I think it was in uh the book the brilliant cultivating the genius of black children uh -huh. I believe is the book that it was in and um the author talks about how girls grow up kind of like playing school and so we line our dolls up and we you know we enact this school play and then we get into the real world with children and they don't sit nice and tidy like our dolls did on our bed when we were, were teaching them. And so like, we're always acting out this fantasy that we had as a, as a little girl <laughs> and our dolls. And then we get in there and we're like, hey, this isn't what I had in mind when I was you know, seven years old. This isn't how this is working. Um, and so it's just, you know, trying to, to understand children is like who they actually are and supporting them, whatever they're bringing to us instead of trying to make them be something that, you know, is in our mind that has nothing to do with who they are as human beings. Right. So dashing our collective fantasies <laughs> and, and, and perhaps our, our longing for control. I mean, most humans want control over something, even, even if it's a two-year-old over what color shirt that she's going to wear. You know, we want some control. And if you're lining up your, your dolls or your real life dolls that certainly aren't dolls, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of people are, I think, both longing for that control and they're also afraid of what might happen if they, quote, lose it, lose the, sure. that control. They, it'll just be wild. It'll be chaotic. I, everyone will get hurt. I won't, you know, there's a lot. One of, one of my favorite things when I was doing a lot of presenting around rough and tumble play, I did um, some work in my center that I worked at at the time, which was um, primarily children coming from low income families. Um, pretty diverse racially, um, but I have this great video of this little boy named Jakari who um, went to the top of the slide and did like a front flip down the slide. And his face when he finished of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that. And like, you know, everybody's looking like waiting for me to like get mad at him for doing that. And I was like, wow, that was really cool that you just did that. And people like literally, I was in a, at a state conference with probably 100 educators in my session. There was like this collective 100 person gasp when he flipped down the slide like that. And, you know, people just freaked out. And I'm like, so I need you to know that Jakari never did this again. <laughs> and no one else ever did it because he knew, um, he thought he was capable. He tried it. He realized like, oh, that didn't feel so good. And every other child looking around is like, oh, no, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, but, you know, in, in some programs that would have resulted in punishment for Jakari uh, yeah. because he was trying to explore how his body worked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it, it's um, discounting the trust inside the kid. As you said, he never did it again. That's more important 
really than the fact that, that he was pushing the limits because if you can't trust that voice inside you, how are you going to get through life? But, you know, he, he obviously functions really well because he took a risk, pushed the boundaries, decided how his body was going to try something. And then he's like, mm, not again, try something else next time. So yeah. Um, yeah. That's the kind of kid you want to welcome in your class. Right. Right. And I think, you know, we, we limit children so much. And so when we're thinking about this topic of implicit bias, so not only are we limiting all children, then we're adding extra limits to this other group of, of children. Um, and I think in some programs and some of the programs that children are getting expelled from, you know, the whole notion of success in that program is conformity. So, you know, we need you to be just like everybody else. We need you to stand in this line. We need you to, you know, do this craft that's going to look like everybody else's. And, you know, how is that going to serve them when they get into, you know, adulthood or even in, you know, high school? Um, if they've constantly spent their whole life trying to conform to a group, there are lots of groups out in the world that we don't want children to conform to. Um, <laughs> So when I was, when I was working Especially in Louisville, from the ages of 15 to 25, <laughs> right. When I was working in Louisville, um, we were in a, a community that had a lot of needs and gang violence was one of the issues in our community. And the way that I was able to finally get my board of directors, like on board to us being like fully play-based, we were, you know, project work, we, you know, really following children's leads was to say, how do you think we can stop? these teenagers from joining a gang if all if they don't know how to make choices and they're just going to find somebody else to tell them what to do so if you're not telling them what to do in a classroom then they're going to find another group of people that are going to tell them what to do and they're going to blindly follow um, you know that's some of the the uh, story of the evolution of Reggio Emilia is that you know they wanted their residents to never follow up with somebody like Mussolini again because they wanted them to be able to think for themselves and, and have their own ideas and, and thoughts. So um, if we start limiting these children so early, they're never going to be able to make decisions for themselves or um, do the amazing things that we need, desperately need them to be able to do when they become adults and they're in charge of the world. Yeah, good. So can we dive into the third B? We did big, we did boy, we should do black. And Jeff, do we need to go into our next segment or can no, we? No, we're good. Okay, good. So this is huge, um, and this is partly in your chapter, but it's getting into that whole section. I think the next chapters are called Black Boys Matter, mm -hmm. um, which is so essential because, I mean, it starts with these young kids. And um, as you say, we all are having all kinds of biases coming in. And even at three and four, the kids have got these biases coming in. So um, yeah, how can we help as early childhood supporters, educators, parents, teachers to um, to lift up these kids? Yeah, so my first recommendation, and this is coming from a, a community that is very white, um, is that if you don't personally know someone that's a different race or ethnicity than you, like go meet someone, go put yourself in a situation so that you can get to know somebody that's different than you you're never going to change your your viewpoint or confront your biases if you're never putting yourself in a position to get to know somebody that maybe has a different experience than you um, and i think that's hard because our whole lives are set up to like stay with our in group um, you know our, our communities are set up to you know make sure that you know nice 
nice neighborhoods, they're typically white neighborhoods, they're typically middle class or up neighborhoods. Um, and we're seeking out, you know, these things for ourselves. So, you know, if you're a white person that lives around all other white people, get out of your comfort zone and, and go and join a group or go to a church or, you know, do something with people that look differently. Than you. And if you're a black person, do the same thing. Because I, I live in a neighborhood that has a, a fairly uh, decent population of immigrants from Kenya, and they want nothing to do with me. So, I mean, you know, it, it just does. some of that comes from, you know, feelings of, of safety, because sometimes well, it's not safe for black yeah, people. To be yeah, I get that. I, I just think it people. goes, I think it does go both ways, though. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us all to get to know each other in a better way and start to hear each other's perspectives and, and start to hear, you know, our stories, because once you have those stories, then it's a lot easier to be empathetic towards somebody. Absolutely, that, that absolutely. I, I grew up, I've got um, four well, two black and two African American siblings, because um, you know, be, I mean, it's how, how we self-identify, right? And so this this group of four um, were adopted when I was I was in middle school, and they came from West Virginia here to Western Iowa, and it was a big transition for all of us. And I remember my my little brothers heading off to elementary school, and having a having a real hard time and they'd come running home about somebody picking on them and i would as big brother go show up to deal with the situation and it it really threw the bullies for uh it threw them off their game when when this middle school white brother shows up and 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 just the struggles those those kids had and i mean there were there were some other stuff things going on in their lives that made elementary school challenging in the first place, but then being kind of very unique, I guess, in, in the very, very Caucasian environment made, I mean, it just amplified the challenges they were already dealing with, I guess. And yeah. it was, it was a hard thing. Yeah, no, so I grew up, my mom is white. I lived with my white family growing up. I went to a small Catholic school where I was the only brown kid. Everybody else was white up until I went to high school. Um, and I think I, I didn't, I've done a lot of reflecting about that since I've been a child. And like literally, I didn't even know anybody that was black until I went to high school. And that was probably towards middle of high school that I actually like made a friend that was black. Um, and so like those kids are out there too, you know, my, my story of being biracial was really like unique in the eighties. It's not so unique now. Yeah. Um, we have a huge, you know, percentages of children that are biracial, multiracial, um, children from trans, uh, Atlantic adoptions, people from, you know, we have all these different types of families now. And I think that we just really need to like not discount those experiences. I think that's great that your family was able to really rally around your, your siblings and, and support them. I think sometimes, and at least in my experience, um, it was hard, I think, for my family to understand and act on some of the experiences I had because it wasn't their experience and they really didn't want it to be true. Yeah. Um, so Illusions, illusions and fantasies, yep. There's right. just no frame right. of reference there. When, when, yeah. I was in, when I was in fourth grade, my, my parents, we, we moved for one, one school year, my parents ran a, a group home on a nearby, um, the, the Winnebago uh, reservation. And so I was one of about maybe four white kids 
in this very predominantly Native American school. And so that gave me a bit of perspective that I wouldn't, uh, and it was, it was horrible. And I carry that forward when, when I've got this new little brother a few years later who's going through what I remember being a miserable fourth grade. And, and, but still, I mean, that's a few months of discomfort. I couldn't imagine what it was like to, I mean, that's who you are for your, your ostracized for, for your whole youth, which has happened to a lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're building like our whole understanding of like the social context in those times. And so if you're understanding of our society is, is really negative because you've had negative, negative experiences. Like what messages are you going to take forth into your adult life? Um, and I even saw that with my own kids. My husband's African. I'm biracial, brown. Um, they still struggle with those identity pieces too. And so like we've had to make some really um, conscious choices about where they go to school and, you know, what neighborhood we live in. Um, so they are surrounded by people that look like them. Um, that, you know, we have books at home of kids that look like them. We had dolls that look like them. And I think some of those choices aren't, um, if, if you're a white mother or father, you might not think to do those things because it's not, it's, it hasn't been your experience that you really need to have good role models and representation for, for people that look like your child. And I think that's something that teachers can do in the classroom too is making sure that the, the materials you have reflect the children that are there. Um, I think for a long time, we talked about all this like multicultural education of like, we needed to have like pictures of kids from you know, China and um, you know, India up in the classroom. Well, that doesn't mean anything if you don't have any Chinese or Indian children in your classroom. Like let's figure out who's there and show some representation. So like that's that whole like mirror thing that they talk about in anti-bias education. But then there's also the window. So then like what's around them? How do we help to stretch what they know um, and, and grow it a little bit? Um, so finding that balance between not just having pictures on a wall that might not mean anything to children. But if you're gonna have, you should have that representation, but you have to talk about it. You can't just put it on the wall and expect like they're gonna that is so key because I think sometimes as adults we're uncomfortable with these topics and so we want to just put a poster on the wall or put a book on the shelf prominently displayed and say okay check I did it well of course human relationships are so much more complex thank goodness than that but we have to talk about anything that's important so um, you know, in my, I think it's the first book, It's Okay Not to Share, I, or maybe it's the second one, I don't even know. But there's a whole chapter about um, that white families, white teachers particularly, have to talk about race. They can't just assume that that's everybody else's job and that their own white kids or whatever kids they have won't notice. I mean, it's this, oh, well, if I just pretend everybody's equal or say everybody's equal, like these little platitudes or put a picture on the wall, then I've done my job. No, I'm afraid it's a lot more complicated, just like dealing with emotions is complicated. You can't just say, okay, be happy. I mean, it's, you've got to talk and you've got to talk more than once. You've got to just make it part of life and that it's not something on a checklist to check off. It's, it's part of everyday living. So you're, you're both saying that you can't just go to the catalog and order the uh, cultural diversity <laughs> costumes for the dress-up area, and then you're, you're good? Yeah, and then well, you put a patch on your shoulder and say, I did it. I've earned that badge. I'm all set. 
So two things about that that just really grind my gears. Um, so number one, no, like that's not okay. And number two, like those are the most stereotypical things that you could possibly find. My husband is African and never in my life have I seen him wear a kente cloth, uh, dashiki, and a little hat. Like that's not <laughs> the real world. So, you know, let's just um, have authentic representations of people in your classroom. Yeah, yeah, and and to the to the point of having the conversations about about diversity and differences and and race and all these kind of things, I got to tell you, I I mean I'm a I'm a white guy in the Ameri in, in the United States of America, so I mean I won the lottery. I mean really I, but when it comes to this this topic. I feel like all I need to do is just shut up and stay out of the way and stay out of the conversation because nothing I can say has any meaning or if I do say something, it's going to be the wrong thing. So I, I don't, what, 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 what do I do? I think listening is important, but I also think that as a person of color, like I need people like you, Jeff, to, to speak up because you have the power in the situation that Heather and I don't have as women as a person of color, I don't have, um, you have the ultimate power to be able to actually make change in the world. I should start a podcast um, where people can talk about these things. <laughs> and that's a power move right there is like actually talking about this on your, on your podcast. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to like open up this can of worms. He does what I say. No, mostly, <laughs> mostly I'm lazy and, and anybody I think is good at talking is welcome on the show. Um, no, Alyssa, this is great. Um, is this a good, Heather, can, can you approve this as a point to break and then come back and do another episode? I always break up the party, yes. Well, you scolded me last time, so I just wanted to make, I got permission this time. This has been Renegade Rules. Heather Shoemaker is with me and Alyssa. Pembe. Melissa, I've been saying, I've been practicing in my head this whole episode. Muena, muena lupe, lupembe. I'm getting got closer. It. You I'm got getting it. closer. I'm gonna. You're for the next three weeks. You're gonna get be getting uh, audio messages from me trying to get it right. Um, <laughs> uh, this has been Renegade Rules. We'll be back soon with another episode. And Heather, tease what we're gonna talk about in the next episode. Well, we're gonna dive more into the topic we're on, which is Black Boys Matter and and all that kind of how we can help. Uh, lift this conversation into reality in, in, in all our lives. So if you're, if you're listening to the episode when it's released, you got to wait a week. If, you've, if you're listening in the future, all you got to do is push play on the next episode. Back soon. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Music by Alexander Shoemaker. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh. Hey, we need your support to keep the podcasts flowing. Go to explorationsearlylearning.com slash support to learn how. One of the big things you can do is shop Amazon with the link we provide. You buy your cat food, you buy your kids' books, you buy whatever it is you buy on Amazon, you pay the regular price. We get a small percentage of it. Everybody wins. A lot of people are doing it. It really supports the shows, and we really appreciate it. Give it a try. Thanks. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.